Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast, Did You Read? Today, I'm joined by Chief Leader Writer Phil Collins, Digital Editor of the Times and former Political Editor Phil Webster, and our Financial Correspondent, Juliet Samuel. And as per usual, we have three topics for discussion. Modernisation of the Conservative Party has been in trouble for some time. Now the noises off are getting louder. Some in the party want Mr Cameron to go further, some want him to stop altogether. What does modernisation now mean, and which direction should Mr Cameron jump? Labour's only hope of emerging from the co-op scandal without complete disaster lies with a senior Tory MP. From the moment George Osborne hinted an inquiry into the case, Andrew Tyree, the robustly unbiddable chairman of the Treasury Committee, was insisting that it be properly independent. Tyree will be watching, and if it does not ask the right questions about the Coalition's own role in allowing the hapless flowers to stay in office and encourage the ill-judged Lloyd's branch takeover, he will ensure that his own committee does. We shouldn't get carried away by the Tumlinson report into the Royal Bank of Scotland until its claims have been verified. Meanwhile, a more substantial report told us why RBS is still not lending more to small business. It's not profitable and it didn't fit with the bank's new credit standards. The bottom line is that small businesses need to stop relying on banks for cash and regulators need to stop piling more and more requirements on banks. So those are our topics for today. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times Opinion Pages. Phil Collins, first of all, can we first of all establish before we perhaps have a broader discussion, whether modernization really is as much trouble as some people are suggesting. I did a little piece for page two of Tuesday's Times in which I looked at NHS reorganization, failure to deliver the number of women ministers that David Cameron talked about, retreats on green issues. Are we absolutely sure that modernization is in trouble? Because you could also say that Pledges on aid have been maintained. Pledges on aids, uh, NHS spending have been maintained. It is a different kind of Conservative Party than perhaps in the William Hague IDS era. I think that all of that's true. I'd agree with everything you say there, Tim. And I think the the answer is mixed, that some of the things that were in the original modernization manifesto have been done. But plenty, as you said yourself, have been scaled back. I mean... uh, Green issues did a lot of work in the early modernization of the Conservative Party. And one of the criticisms that I share with you of that modernization program was that that's probably the wrong place to do it, that 
if the Conservative Party had modernised on the issue of poverty or cost of living or social justice or one in those, that collection of social policy issues, then they'd be in a much better position now that that's the dominant debate of mm. the moment. So I think they are in a – it is in a bit of trouble. I also think that modernisation – and here I speak as a veteran of the Blair – period too is a constant process it's a sort of permanent revolution it's not as if you modernize once and then you stop it's actually modernization is a bit of a misnomer it's a constant change and a constant updating and it gets wearisome and parties really dislike it and it's a constant process of taking on your own party and it's inevitable that there comes a point and it's come quite early for the conservatives when the party says no that's reducing our identity. We don't want any more of this stuff. And well, I think that happened quite early for, the, for one very good and, and unavoidable reason, which is the Blair government's had majorities of 179 and the Cameron go- government doesn't. Therefore, <laughs> internal questions are just more important. We'll come back to some of that in a minute. But Philip Webster, you were political editor from the time that David Cameron became leader until the general election where he didn't quite get over the finishing line. Did he not get over the finishing line because modernization was incomplete or was it as sort of um, Phil, uh, the other Phil here is suggesting that actually it wasn't focused on the right issues, the party of the rich, not focusing on social justice, not focusing enough on the public services? What's your thinking? I, I, th- I think it's the latter. I think that he didn't do enough at the time of the 2010 election to show the electorate that this brand of Toryism was going to be different from the past. And I don't think that message got across. What was interesting about the excellent um, Times report on Tuesday, uh, revealing details of a meeting between Cameron and his backbenchers, uh, in which they stood up and said to him, look, you're, you're ditching too many of your modernization policies, mm-hmm. is, is the fact that so much of it got out and the fact that people wanted to talk about it. Mm. There is clearly a feeling among those MPs who support modernization that they're being rolled over. Mm. They hated this remark attributed to the Prime Minister about the green crap. Uh, We've seen in other ways how that's affecting uh, the energy policy at the moment, uh, a chance remark, but clearly that's having an effect. Did it have an effect on the decision of Atlantic Array to pull out of the the North Devon Mm. development and all of that? But clearly... Uh, there is now a battle royal going on within the Tory party. And it is interesting, that Times report from Tuesday, 25 Tory MPs. That's the first time perhaps we're seeing the modernising group within the Conservative Party organised. Phil Collins just wants to come back. Well, I think the other thing that happened to modernisation was the the things that the two of you are going to come on to talk about in a moment, which is to say the financial crash. Modernisation was essentially about spending. If you remember, Osborne and and Cameron matched the uh, Labour spending plans and their view was to show that Conservatives don't dislike the state. They don't think that government can't do anything. They're a different breed of Conservative. And that ambition was completely blown away by the financial crisis. And all of a sudden, the 
problem they inherited was one of austerity mm. and of having to reduce public spending. Now, there's lots in the Conservative Party who are quite, in a way, quite happy with that. But that's not what George Osborne and David Cameron conceived modernisation as going to be. They did not imagine that their task would be to close sure start centres, as George Osborne mm. once said. And that's made it very difficult for them as well. Well, Danny Finkelstein, one of the, our fellow commentators here at the time, talked a little while ago about the movement to cold weather modernization, that in a sense, modernization had to reflect the fact that the political economic climate had changed. But bringing you in uh, at this point, uh, Juliet Samuel, there was a, a time when David Cameron said that austerity was forced upon him. It wasn't what he wanted to do. But recently, I think it was the Lord Mayor's dinner, he said, actually, there was now going to be a permanent feature of the landscape. Is Is that almost unavoidable now that he's going to have to be long-term uh, Prime Minister, a Conservative leader, just associated not with a big society, not with the greenest government ever, all those modernising themes, but just cutting, cutting, cutting. Clearly the Tories aren't in the position that they thought they'd be in before the election. Um, and in fact, if you look at spending plans or growth forecasts, right now we were meant to be on a you know, downward trajectory of the deficit. We were meant to be, you know, the Chancellor was was probably meant to be starting to think about what goodies he would hand out for the next election, which looks pretty fanciful now. Not, not according to Tory MPs. Some Tory MPs are desperate that he will give tax cuts in mm. the autumn statement. Well, whatever he gives will have to be fairly neutral as far as... Uh, the deficit is concerned. All so the markets can, can will do, wobble? Well, you, not just that, but you risk, if your whole political message has been that you are going to get the country back onto sound finances and then you basically start moving away from that, then what has your government been for? Phil, just to uh, close this particular part of our topic, we've now had, I think, three Tory leaders, uh, William Hague, Michael Howard and David Cameron, who started off with big modernising messages and seem to have been pulled rightwards. Is this the weakness of the leaders? Is it the strength of the right? Is it the power of the right-wing press? What, what do you put it down to? Or actually, is it just inevitable that a centre-right party has to involve the right in order to be competitive and sustainable? I think it's inevitable. I think the reason that Blair was allowed to, to modernise fairly unimpeded from his party was that he was a numinous political figure who walked above everybody else and won a majority of 179. He had the freedom to do as he pleased for a time. Eventually, of course, the Labour Party pulled back and Neil Kinnock famously said when Ed Miliband was elected, we've got our party back. Mm. So the pr same process happens on the left. It's just been compressed on the right. Modernisation on the right happened very quickly too. You have to remember that on the left, Neil Kinnock himself began the process. Yeah. And it was a very long period of policy change. Lots of work was done. The Tories tried to do all of that in a couple of years. So it was a very truncated process at the beginning. And as a consequence, the, they didn't win. Uh, well, not outright. And it's much more difficult. So I don't think it's that the right are particularly obnoxious or prone to that kind of thing. I just think it's the electoral circumstances. I want to be, but you're dying to come in, Juliet, uh, so just, quickly. Well, <laughs> you, you made the point at the end there that they didn't win with that agenda. And now you could argue the public is much less interested in it. So perhaps that tells you a bit about why it's being abandoned. And the, say, and the, people, who, the people who most dislike the coalition within the Tory party i.e. the right, are virtually the same people 
who hate most of these modernization policies. And, and that's why it's going to be very difficult for any Tory leader to do it without a full majority. Thank you for that, Phil Webster. And we now must move on to the topic that you've nominated for our discussion this week. And one thing that the Tory right and Tory MPs do like is knocking Labour. And you have a suspicion, perhaps, that there are high ups in the Conservative Party who are trying to make more political capital out of the co-op uh, business that uh, has been dominating the headlines for the last week. It's almost had every possible ingredient of a political business and uh, celebrity story. Um, but you think Andrew Tyree, the independent-minded chairman of the Treasury Select Committee, will ensure that actually the inquiry, the main inquiry underway, will be fair and will ask questions of both sides? I'm sure that Andrew Tyree will. He is a very himself a very independent-minded guy. He also knows the Treasury inside out. He also knows the way uh, the machinations of politics work. And I think he probably knows that uh, George Osborne is the ultimate political strategist. So he'll be watching um, Osborne. Uh, can Labour come out of this uh, unsullied? Of course not. Bread and cheese, fish and chips, lab and co-op, they all go together. We've always seen Labour and the cooperative movement as, as one and the same. Co-op sponsors a lot of, uh, of Labour MPs, including Ed Balls. There is, though, there are, there are questions for the Tories, for the coalition to answer. And I'm absolutely sure that Tyree will be watching. There is the, the whole question of the extent to which the coalition encouraged the um, what would have been a disastrous hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Taking over of Lloyd's branches. Clearly, they wanted it to happen. The Treasury Committee, I think, is already planning to Lord Levine, who was heading a rival group. And he was apparently told by the uh, governor, Lord King, that there's no point in you going for this politics say it's got to be the co-op mm-hmm. so and there's uh, there's clearly evidence also of lots and lots of meetings between treasury ministers and the co-op leadership a and, few with flowers himself and there's also the question of course is that flowers was not asked big questions by conservative liberal democrat ministers either he kept this job even when he didn't know the assets of his own bank when he, when he was 44 billion out apparently in, in what he thought they were worth Juliet, was there big questions across the city about what was going on with flowers and co was was the city ahead of westminster in knowing that this was a bank running into trouble well uh one key clue that the bank was in trouble was that it, all of its debt was being bought by u.s hedge funds who invest in distressed assets uh and hedge funds hedge funds probably weren't going to be buying debt unless they knew it was going to be turned into shares. So the city was was pretty... I mean, the, the, the view in the city from a lot of people was that the whole reason the co-op and Lloyd's deal had been uh, blessed by the government or even pushed for was that the Lloyd's branches would recapitalise the co-op and then the entity at the end of it would be 
roughly sound mm. or would be be able to become sound but but then then the regulator sort of stepped in quite late and said well actually we don't think you're sound enough to take over these branches so it was seemed to be an extremely mixed up process that surprised a lot of people and it was the regulator rather than George Osborne that stopped the process yes because basically the the regulator when they look at these things they have to look at how much capital is in the pot and at some point if the number's not high enough then they they can't just wave it through Phil, Phil Collins how much do you think this will hurt Labour? Because a lot of people have been talking about it. We've all, of course, been fascinated by Reverend Flowers. He's a figure that I think if you were in a movie, we wouldn't quite <laughs> believe that he existed. But will this do long-term damage to uh, Labour? Or actually, do voters kind of think this is the thing that politicians do anyway? They're not the most ethical of people, or they want them to be somehow competent? Or actually, is the implication for Labour not the immediate scandal, but the fact that they will lose money from a bank that actually gives them quite a lot of money and, and loans over recent times? Yes, I think the, the actual consequence for Labour will be individual MPs will lose sponsorship and the party will lose funding. And at a time when they're engaged in a dispute with the trade unions, which is losing them funding, that's a very serious question. Whether this scandal will, is, will ever get close enough to any individual politician to do them real damage, I rather doubt. I think the gap between the scandal and, and, and Ed Miliband and Ed Balls or George Osborne is sufficiently large. I don't. But come really, on, we're funding Ed Balls' office. True, aren't but they? I, I, I read, read everything. I don't really believe that, you, that anyone will be able to draw a straight line between Ed Balls and Reverend Flowers and say that Ed Balls knew specific things. I, mean, I may be proved wrong in that, but that will be the sort of thing that needs to happen in order for there to be real damage. And I think George Osborne probably did push for. Uh, this deal. And you can imagine why. Think back to the atmosphere at the time. Really anti-banker ethos. And you've got this bank, which is a mutual or the cooperative. They, they're perfect. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. And into the bargain that we can do a sort of uh, saving of their balance sheet at the same time. What a perfect mi mix that was. So I'm sure there's responsibility politically, but whether it ever gets quite close enough to be able to cause real damage at the moment, I doubt. And Phil, a lot of listeners to this podcast will be perhaps unfamiliar with the fact that there is this group of 30 or so Labour MPs who are also cooperative MPs. When you were political editor, did you notice that these MPs had a kind of a different philosophy or a different set of priorities? Or is this more of a historical relic than actually something that means within the Labour Party there's a group of people who think differently about certain issues? Well, I think there always has been this link between the Labour Party and the mutual uh, movement. And I think it's constituency-based. They've always um, sponsored the MPs in certain constituencies where the cooperative movement um, has flourished. Um, it, it, we knew about it, but uh, it, didn't, it didn't really impact on anybody's thinking until recent days and weeks. I, I think the Labour Party have got themselves into a right state about it. They've got very upset with the press. They've got, got upset with the Times, as we saw the other yes. day. Um, but it's, it's very hard to talk about smearing when the truth is actually out there, the truth. There is absolutely no need for anybody to do any smearing on this The case. The truth is really stranger than fiction. It doesn't need anybody <laughs> to make anything up. Well, that's certainly true. Well, look, well that's the co-op bank. The other bank that's been in the news is the Royal Bank of Scotland. And Juliet, you've uh, primed us to talk about uh, this uh, topic. There's these stories around from the Tomlinson report that 
uh, RBS deliberately put reasonably uh, solid uh, companies into default by charging them high fees, charging them high interest rates so that they could kind of raid their property portfolios. But you don't think that's necessarily the big issue surrounding RBS this week? Well, I think that the problem with the Tomlinson report, although it's something that that needs to be looked at um, by regulators or by forensic accountants and lawyers, it's uh, it's it's not actually it didn't actually have any evidence in the report. It was a fairly short report, about twenty pages, considering the allegations it was making. And um, I mean, people seem to have have deemed it to, to all be true without the evidence actually being That's yet never at, happened before that journalists or any commentators have jumped to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the, the problem was that in, amidst all that, then we actually maybe paid less attention to another report about RBS yesterday, which was actually probably for the broader economy a bit more important. And that was the Andrew Large report, which talked about RBS's lending for, to small businesses and why that is shrinking. And one of the most important facts in that report was a figure showing that RBS makes a return of less than 7%, 3 to 7% on a small business loan. And uh, so what they do in order to, to make more money out of small businesses is they offer a lot of services. And some of those are services that are needed, like transaction banking or, or you know, basically changing, changing money or transfers or whatever. Uh, some of those are also things like selling interest rate swaps, which, you know, we now know is a lot of those products were pretty useless and damaging to businesses. But even then, it only gets their profits from, from having small business customers up to half the profits that they make from mortgage lending. So we mm. wonder why all this money is being fundled, funneled into the housing market. If you actually look at the numbers, it's pretty obvious why. And does that? How do we deal with that then? Is it, should we be changing the way we regulate banks? Should certain types of lending need less capital than other types, or is that too, is that not a job for regulators? Well, on the one hand, you have the regulations, which are now becoming extremely punitive for lending to SMEs, and in fact, you've had Andy Haldane at the Bank of England talking about this periodically that that regulators need to look at what they're doing to the cost of small business lending um but you, you also have the fact that small businesses got used to being the recipient of all this cheap credit that was being shoveled out of banks when in fact that's often not the best way to fund a small business and they should be looking for buyers of equity and shares which in america is a much bigger yeah. source of and uh, in other parts of and peer-to-peer yeah bank lending phil webster well, poor old RBS really can't win at the moment. They, they, they've been excoriated for being reckless. And then in the large report that Juliet referred to, they're being criticised for not taking up the options of lending that was there. They've been, if you like, they've overcorrected. Um, and that's, that's a serious problem. But the other report, the Tomlinson report, has resulted in a, in a new wave of vitriol against RBS uh, in our own – in the Times – Ross Clark has even questioned whether the Labour government was right to bail Hmm. RBS out. Um, So, uh, and uh, over in the House of Lords, the Archbishop of Canterbury is now leading the charge with all kinds of uh, amendments to the financial services bills uh, to clamp down on bankers' bonuses, to to set out this whole business about separating the retail and investment arms. So... Six They're still six, in the dock. No, six or seven years after they were bailed out and they were the least popular organisations in the country, they are still the least popular organisations. And there's a Phil, uh, Phil Collins that a reckoning hasn't taken place still. 
Well, I think it has. And I don't know what a reckoning would look like other than stripping the knighthood of a banker. I don't understand what a reckoning would be like. This is what happens in financial capitalism. You have swings, you have booms, you have busts. Well, there we are. We've just had one. Now, the banking reform bill that's going through is, does very little. And in fact, this is one of the areas which the, a change of government would make a very big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a great deal of detail from Labour on policy. But on banking, funnily enough, we do. We know that they would have a full-blooded split between the retail and the wholesale parts of, the, uh, of banking. Uh, and we know there'd be much tougher on bankers' bonuses for good or ill. We Perhaps this also, is the reckoning that lots of people want. Perhaps it is. Whether it's a good idea mm. is quite a different thing. Because if by a reckoning you want a sort of thirst for vengeance and some sort of um, retribution for the damage done, well, that's one thing. Whether that actually makes sense, whether that in fact reduces your tax revenue pretty rapidly such that your reckoning comes at quite a price, I think we have to be very careful about that. Final word to, to you, Julia, in the, uh, the podcast. Uh, we, of course, want the banks to lend to small businesses because we see them as the engine of the economy. But uh, Mark Carney was in front of the uh, Treasury Select Committee on Tuesday morning and saying that the British recovery was about the strongest in the developed world. How good is the British economy at the moment? It will be interesting to see if he's still saying the same next year and whether the numbers continue to pan out. But, um, I mean, most of the signs so far, there hasn't yet been a a major data point, except maybe small business lending that contradicts the pretty rosy picture at the moment. But whether that can continue with uh, the rest of the world slowing down and the Eurozone not picking up at all is questionable. And a frothy housing market, at least in the southeast. Well, that's that's probably a longer-term issue, maybe five to ten years. Um, We'll see perhaps the results of another bubble being inflated or reinflated in the housing market. Juliet Samuel, Philip Webster, Philip Collins, thank you all very much. And also to David McGuire, who produces this podcast. Thank you all for listening. And if you want to follow up some of the uh, issues that we've been discussing, do visit thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, where I'll list some of those articles that subscribers can access. Until next week. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.